Today's scripture reading comes from Colossians chapter 2, verse 16 to 23. Therefore, do not let anyone judge you by what you eat or drink, or with regard to a religious festival, a new moon celebration, or a Sabbath day. These are a shadow of the things that were to come. The reality, however, is found in Christ. Do not let anyone who delights in false humility and the worship of angels disqualify you. Such a person also goes into great detail about what they have seen. They are puffed up with idle notions by their unspiritual mind. They have lost connection with the head and from whom the whole body, supported and held together by its ligaments and sinews, grows as God causes it to grow. Since you died with Christ to the elemental spiritual forces of this world, why, as though you still belong to the world, do you submit to its rules? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. These rules, which, do not, which have to do with things that are all destined to perish with use, are based on merely human commands and teachings. Such regulations indeed have an appearance of wisdom with their self-imposed worship, their false humility, and their harsh treatment of the body, but they lack any value in restraining sensual indulgence. Good morning, everyone. And thank you, Levin, for, for doing the scripture reading. I get to see Levin a lot. <laughs> he's, in my, he's in my class. Um, this morning when I came in, I wasn't going to share this, and I thought, oh, whatever. Um, Darren came in and said, you ready for the sermon? And I said, well... No, I, I ran out of time, so I thought we'd do a sword drill. <laughs> We're not doing a sword drill. I know some of you, some of you are ready. Yes, let's do that. And others are, are going to run away. So uh, we're going <laughs> to have a sermon. Um, so uh, the title of, of today's sermon is Disqualified. It's not usually a word people want to hear. But I want to start with a little bit of uh, remember when, a little bit of reminiscing. Um, so here's a picture of an event that happened when I was in grade 10, September and, uh, 1988. Now that should be lots of hints. Who is this person running and seemingly winning first place? Ben Johnson. Okay. So Ben Johnson was a Canadian athlete, a sprinter, and this is the 100-meter race at the 1988 our Summer Olympics in Seoul, Korea. And uh, whoever wins the 100-meter race is called the fastest man in the world. And we were all very excited as a, as a person who wants to be a proud Canadian that we could have someone from our country be the fastest man in the world. But that didn't last very long um, because Ben Johnson was tested positive for steroids. The Olympic officials confiscated his gold medal, erased his records, and suspended him from any competition for two years. He was eventually stripped of his 1987 world record as well, 
And then at the Dublin Commission hearings, coach Charlie Francis and then Johnson himself admitted that Johnson and others had been using steroids systematically for some time. So at some point in, in his life, before 1987, Ben Johnson heard a voice. And the voice said, you should take steroids to improve your performance. Even though you're breaking the rules, you'll, it'll help you win. And at some point, he decided, yep, I'm going to listen to that voice and eventually face the consequences. Now I have another moment in Canadian history here. Um, this may be, might be a little harder. Who are these two people? Jamie Soleil and David Pelche. Thank you. Okay. <laughs> so these are figure skaters. This is the 2002 Salt Lake City Winter Olympics. And you can see on Jamie Soleil's face, she looks kind of confused. And it's because she's looking at the scores that the judges gave on the final event. These, this was the, um, the final say of who was going to win the gold medal, who was going to win silver bronze. Um, and it turned out that the Russians won the gold. Or did they? According to the Canadian Encyclopedia, I'm quoting here, their gold medal performance at Salt Lake City in 2002 was somewhat bittersweet. Dubbed Skategate, the controversy surrounding the loss to the Russian Paris, Paris team made headlines worldwide. In the days that followed, media exposure of a possible judging scandal in the Paris event raised Saleh and Pelche to superstar status and garnered them worldwide support. Four days after the Paris competition, the International Skating Union, pressured by the International Olympic Committee to act quickly, found that the French judge, Marie Lagon, was guilty of fraudulent judging, an act that may not sure, may have prevented them, Saleh and Pelche, from getting the gold medal. And many people felt that that's what they deserved. So as a result, they had a double gold medal award ceremony, <laughs> which is kind of unusual. Um, so both the Russian team and the Canadian team stood at the top of the podium. Allegedly, Legong succumbed to pressure from the French Federation to give a better score to the Russian team. So for Salier and Pelche, eventually, it was a happy ending. Or was it? <laughs> um, yes, they got gold medals, but the, the scandal deprived them of their moment and it left a mark on them that they still can't shake to this day. This is what David Pelche has said later. I don't feel like a victim, and I don't complain, but we were robbed of a moment that is part of the Olympic experience. If you receive a medal a year later, six months, five days later, the emotion is gone. 
It's still emotional, of course, but it's just not the same. As those of us who watch sports or participate in sports, we know that very often there is no happy ending. I'm a Leafs fan, so. <laughs> um, you see a referee or an umpire make a decision, and it looks so wrong, you feel so cheated. How could he do that? And I don't have a solution to this problem. Um, there is no solution. Even having instant replay hasn't fixed the problem. They still get it wrong. <laughs> this unfair judging just keeps happening. Now, what does this have to do with Colossians? You see, Paul was afraid of the same thing. He was hearing what was going on in Colossae, and he was afraid. So he wrote this letter because he was afraid that the believers were losing their rightful prize. They were giving it away. They were being disqualified. And it was a prize that only Christ could bring. Here's another picture of some fans uh, watching a hockey game. This seems kind of strange because this, this is not the norm, but they're all wearing referee uniforms. <laughs> okay. Um, but they're just pretending. Like, these are not the actual referees. They can't actually call penalties. They can't actually make offside calls. Um, they're, they're fake. These are fake referees, false umpires, pretend judges. But these were the kind of people that had got somehow a voice in the congregation at Colossae. And too many people were listening to them. And this is why Paul had to write this letter. He is writing to quote unquote, blow the whistle <laughs> on these self-appointed umpires, wannabe referees. In verse 18, Paul warns to not let anyone disqualify you. This is the most common translation of this word. I went through 60 different translations to find out. <laughs> it's kind of cool, actually. There's this thing called Bible Gateway. You can read a verse in 60 different translations. It gives you some perspective on, on what it's trying to say. Um, but, but disqualify was the most common translation. Other words were rob, cheat, or beguile. The Greek word is katabrabayu. You don't have to know that, but it's kind of fun to say. Katabrabayu. <laughs> um, it's the only place in the New Testament you find this word. If you go back to the original, where did this word come from? Its oldest usage is somebody bribing a judge so that another person will be condemned or will lose something that they own. And over time, it came to have three sort of subtly different meanings, to rob or defraud somebody of a prize, to make an unfair decision against someone, or to deprive or disqualify someone from their rightful reward. Now, apart from being disqualified, there is a lot in the verses that Levin read about what we call the Colossian heresy. 
this is probably the, the most clear indication we have of what was being taught. So here are some heresy highlights or lowlights. <laughs> um, there were many rituals and rules. Mysticism was a key part of this, focused on angels and visions. Asceticism, which is denying yourself of pleasure, um, which led to false humility. They were adding on things to Christ and in that way diminishing or belittling Christ. They were focused on earthly traditions, earthly wisdom. They were motivated by their own pride. And the tricky part is it actually seemed like a good judgment. It had the appearance of being a good idea. And then finally, they had compartmentalized or separated the universe into two things. All the good things was the spiritual invisible parts and all the bad things are the physical worldly parts, including your own body. Your body is physical, so you are 100% evil. So these are the things that were being taught. And you, now you can kind of understand why would Paul write this letter? Well, if this was catching on, he needed to do something about it. And you can start to understand why Paul spent so much time in chapters one and two to elevate Jesus. There is a lot of scripture putting Jesus at the top. Okay, very important. And we're gonna talk about that more later. So what was the attraction? Because some of these teachings seem kind of strange and why would people be attracted to those ideas? Well, I think I can put them into three sort of appeals, three categories. And if we're honest with ourselves, I believe most of us, at least one of these is a problem for us. We're tempted by one of these three appeals, maybe more than one. So the first appeal is the appeal of rule-keeping. Paul calls the rules and the laws a shadow. A shadow is nothing, really. Like, I'm up here, depending on where I stand, I've got lots of shadows going on here. <laughs> I can't get away from them, but, um, but they're not really anything. You can't grab hold of them, right? The, they're just the shadow, the substance, the actual reality is me moving around, making the shadows, okay? So the shadows do lead or indicate that there is a reality of something. Shadows come and go. So what's the reality? Interestingly, the writer of Hebrews has a very similar way of describing the Old Testament and the rules and the rituals. In Hebrews 10.1, it says, the law is only a shadow of all the good things that are coming, not the realities themselves. For this reason, the law can never, by the same sacrifices repeated endlessly, year after year, make perfect those who draw near to worship. The laws, the feasts, the festivals, the Sabbath, they point to Jesus, the reality. They're just a shadow. 
and following the rules and the rituals and the feasts and the Sabbaths don't actually save you at all. But some of us like the rules, <laughs> right? The rules make sense. Yeah, if I follow this rule, this bad thing over here will never happen. And that's true, okay? I'm not saying the rules are necessarily the problem. The problem in Colossae and often in churches and in ourselves, the rules are promoted not as a way of worshiping God or living a proper life, but as a way of adding to the saving work of Christ. So a sort of extra insurance. Because Christ, yeah, he did this wonderful thing, but uh, it might not have been enough. So I better make sure I do my part. And then, of course, if I follow the rules closely enough, God will notice and he'll give me the blessings because now he owes me something. This is a quote from one of the commentaries I was reading. The person who is meticulous in his observance of special days, who keeps all the food laws, and who practices ascetic abstinence is in very grave danger of thinking himself particularly good and looking down on other people who don't follow the rules quite as good. It is a basic truth of Christianity that no man who thinks himself good is really good. Least of all, the man who thinks himself better than other people. So that's the first appeal, the rule keeping. The second appeal is the hype and status that comes from having something to experience. You see, these spiritual empires were emphasizing mysticism, and the mysticism was necessary to experience and gain salvation. Not, not this, not the word of truth that God revealed to us, not this, what we call canon, we call this the canon of scripture because it's a measuring stick. We can measure whether something is right or wrong according to this, not the experience. But that's not what everybody thinks. <laughs> Using subjective religious experiences as a way of measuring your spirituality, where do I measure up? This is a very dangerous game to play. However, some will argue. Peter had a vision. He had this weird experience of seeing a scroll of animals and God was communicating to him. Yeah, that's true. And Paul had some bizarre thing happen. He didn't even know how to describe it. He went to the third heaven and heard things that he couldn't even write down because it didn't really make any sense. Isn't that a mystical experience and shouldn't we be having those kind of things ourselves? If you want to read a, 
more fully about Paul's experience, it's 2 Corinthians chapter 12. Yes, Paul had a vision. Paul experienced the third heaven, whatever that means. But at no point did Paul prescribe that on anyone else. In fact, God gave Paul a thorn, something painful that he had to experience because God did not want Paul to become proud of this journey to the third heaven. According to the Colossian heresy, the physical world is totally evil. And so that means if Christ was actually a physical person walking around, eating and drinking with the rest of us, then he must be evil too. See, that, see the problem with that? <laughs> um, and so this is why Paul spends so much time explaining Christ is eternal Christ is the creator. Christ rules everything and everyone. But in Colossae, they had a different idea. They thought, Jesus can't be at the top. You know, there's got to be somebody else in the pecking order. There's got to be angels, because angels are spiritual, so they're good. There must be angels or somebody that we also have to talk to or worship in order to get to God. Because this Jesus, he can't be God. How could God be in a physical world? It's impossible. See, it didn't fit their view. And this is my problem, my main problem, with what I hear from uh, Mormons and Jehovah's Witnesses whenever I talk to them. Um, They have good intentions, and often they're really nice people, but... Their Jesus is smaller than the real Jesus. They have a shrunk-down Jesus. They have a watered-down gospel. In my life, um, this has happened too often, where I, people I know have become discouraged and disillusioned Because everyone else, apparently, is having visions and is speaking in tongues and is convulsing on the floor and is being visited by angels and are dreaming these vivid dreams of of these spiritual truths. Everyone else is having that experience except me. So they come to this conclusion, well, It must mean that I'm not saved. Or it must mean God is really angry with me. Or it must mean that I've committed some unforgivable sin. Or it means I haven't given enough money to the church. That's a popular one. But my friends, these are lies. All that I just said, those are 100% outright lies. And this is why Paul is so adamant and pleading with the Colossians, don't fall for this. Don't let yourself be disqualified. 
you already have the prize. Don't give it away. Don't let these judges take it from you. They don't have the authority to take it from you, no matter what they say. They're not connected to Jesus. They're not connected to the head. They just want the experience. They don't really want a savior or a Lord and master. And then they want to boast about this subjective experience, but they don't want to boast about Jesus, the objective. Third appeal is the appeal of self-denial. Asceticism, that's the fancy word for, you know, stopping doing things that you like to do, like um, eating ice cream, having sex. (laughs) I'm going to stop. I'm just going to stop. I'm not going to have anything to do with all that stuff now. So this is asceticism. And throughout the history of Christianity, it has been practiced. So I'm not saying we shouldn't, that we should just not do these things. And if you look at other religions, they're, they're practicing this too, Buddhism, Islam. Um, so shouldn't we be encouraging this kind of thing? Don't people draw closer to God when they, when they fast? Shouldn't we do this too? Well, I, my answer would be yes and no. My question is, what is the motivation? Why are you doing it? I would say that's the key question. Because if you're earning righteousness by self-denial, that's just as wrong as earning righteousness by following all the rules. You're not saved more or saved less because of what you have or what you don't have, what you give or what you don't give, what you receive, what you don't receive. And those who get caught up in this self-denial become inevitably proud. And they pat themselves on the back and they say, how amazing am I? I am amazing. I went an entire two weeks without caffeine. I'm so much better than that guy. He's always drinking coffee. That's not the kind of humility that God is looking for. Um, Now, of course, it's true. The physical world, the material world, um, it's, it's around us all the time. We're in a culture where we're supposed to buy, 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 get, 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 more, more, more. And the status of having money and security, these things are highly valued. And it's true. They can be very distracting and keep us from what God wants us to do. King Solomon is a biblical example of someone who had too much and it caused him to be distracted from what God's ideal would be for his life. So making kind of these kinds of sacrifices can be a really good idea. I'm not, I'm not saying that you, nobody should do this. But you can't let anyone including yourself, convince you that your salvation isn't real because you, know, you just don't sacrifice enough. You're not ascetic enough. Now, I just want to remind everyone that 
the verses that you read, there's a context. There's verses before and there's verses after, and Paul is trying to create and develop an argument. A lot of his letters is that has a certain flow. He's trying to propose ideas upon ideas upon ideas, truth upon truth upon truth as an argument. And he, it's very careful, and he's constructing these arguments with precision. So if we think back to chapters one and two, the Colossian church, boy, there was a lot of good things going on in Colossae. Amazing stuff. So let me just remind you from chapters one and two. Paul says the believers in Colossae were faithful. They were loving. They were orderly, thankful, bearing fruit, growing. They had been rescued, redeemed, forgiven, reconciled, buried and raised with Christ, made alive with Christ, no longer dead in sins, and now rooted in Christ. How could they possibly have any problems? This is amazing. But they did. <laughs> Despite all that positive stuff, there were trends that were troubling. And Paul was worried that this church was eventually going to just disappear. So these are the troubling trends. Some of the Colossians were deceived and deluded by fine-sounding arguments. They had been taken captive by hollow and deceptive philosophy, and they were depending on human tradition and worldly principles. Paul is so concerned that they'll just buy in what these fake umpires and false teachers are pushing that they'll lose their freedom in Christ, they'll lose their power that Christ has given them. So here we have one of the most popular memes on the internet. I don't know how many times I've come across this meme. Sometimes it has to do with um, a sporting team, right? So here are the Oilers fans. Uh, this is fine. We don't need to actually win hockey games to be Stanley Cup winners, you know. Um, or sometimes they'll, this is, this is the Liberal Party or this is um, the teachers' union, or whatever it is. This, this meme gets used a lot. Um, and, and it's funny, and it's kind of cute and funny that this dog is having a cup of coffee in his house, I guess, and is oblivious. He doesn't see the fire. He can't smell the smoke. He doesn't know that this destruction is happening all around him, and he just keeps smiling and saying, this is fine. Now, I know this is kind of a... a a cute little meme, but <laughs> this actually is very similar to what's going on with the Colossians. They seemed oblivious to the dangers that were happening around them. And so Paul is trying to wake them up. Please wake up and notice what's going on. Don't just pretend everything's fine. It's not fine. And so there is a problem that's been with the Christian church right from the get-go. Actually, it was even before the church started. The Pharisees and Jesus kept, you know, butting heads because the Pharisees were focused on what I call performance-based acceptance. 
If you do what you're supposed to do, then God will love you. It's as simple as that. Right? And sometimes we fall for this and we don't even realize it. Because it can be subtle. And if you have fallen for it and someone tells you, I think you're, you're buying into this performance-based acceptance thing, you might say, no, 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 no. I'm going to ignore you because I can't admit that I've been doing this for years. It would bruise my ego and my pride, so I'm just going to keep going down this path. Now, just let me know if this sounds familiar. How do I know, or how do I get, sorry, not how do I know, how do I get God to love me? How do I get God to accept me? Okay, growing up in the church. Well, it's simple. I've got 11 ways right here. God will love and accept me. One, if I don't do drugs. If I don't buy alcohol. If I don't go to the pool hall. If I don't work on Sundays. God will love and accept me if I don't use swear words. Well, unless you're driving. Then it's understandable. Um... Uh, God will love and accept me if I don't gossip. Well, that's kind of great too because um, I do want people to pray for those wayward sinners over there. So I probably should tell people what's going on in their lives. Um, uh, okay, what else? Uh, oh, I won't go to the casino, of course. Um, God will love and accept me. I will tithe 10% of my gross Income. Not net. Has to be gross. <laughs> I will attend church every Sunday. I will read my Bible for one hour every morning. And I will pray for all the missionaries in the foreign fields. I think I can manage this. If I can just keep up with all this, I've got God's love and acceptance. I don't know where these, where these came from exactly, but um, sometimes in, in Sunday school or sometimes when grandma comes to visit, you might hear this kind of thing. <laughs> these, are actual, these are actual slogans, okay? We don't drink or smoke or chew, and we don't go with those who do. Another good one is, Lips that touch wine shall never touch mine. Okay, so you've got to get these slogans stuck in your head because they're going to keep you from, from going down the dark path. So this performance-based acceptance, what is the real danger? Well, you see, it plays with our pride. If we can say, I've done this, and I've done this, or I haven't done that, and I've avoided that, we start to think of ourselves as doing a pretty good job. And it's hard to accept that, you know, I like the performance-based thing. It works for me. Well, according to the Colossians, it's very dangerous, and you could lose the prize that God has for you. If we look at the end of chapter 2, Paul summarizes the problem. And he says that the rules 
and the regulations and the rituals and the abstaining from the world, it looks like a wise plan, at least on the outside. But bad news is it doesn't change your heart. It doesn't change your sinful desires. You still have those, no matter how many rules you make for yourself. Now, again, for some of us, the rules are actually a good idea. If you struggle with um, alcoholism and you have to make a rule that I don't walk into bars and I, I don't bring alcohol into my home, that's probably a smart plan, okay? Um, changing the settings on your streaming service so that only PG-13 movies get through. And you're doing that because you struggle with lust. Well, that's actually not that bad of an idea. Or maybe you realize, I need to cut up all my credit cards and, and throw, them out, throw them in the trash. Why? Well, I, I, I can't stop shopping. And with online shopping, it's even harder because everything is so shiny. I can get that new laptop, that phone, that, those clothes, those earrings, whatever, whatever it is. I have to have it. Well, again, stopping your credit cards might actually help, but it doesn't change the inside. That is something only a God can do for you. So I sometimes have to stop and look at my own motives, which isn't always fun. I have to ask, why am I doing what I'm doing? Why am I fasting? Why am I giving away money? Why am I trying to live to a certain moral code? Why? Do I actually have pure motives or have I been deceived? Am I just trying to create my own sense of self-righteousness based on what I'm doing? So I have a, a question here. I, uh, I, I made a little equation um, I'm wondering, how would you fill in the blank on this equation? And I have a couple other questions. If you were to die tonight, do you know what would happen to you? Do you know where you would go? Do you have certainty? Would you be with Jesus? If you say, yes, of course, I, I'm with Jesus, I'm in heaven, I will ask you another question then, why? If you say, no, no, I'm not going to be there, I would ask you again, why? And if you say, well, I don't know, I'm, I, I can't really be sure, I don't know, I would ask you, why? Why aren't you sure? As you're evaluating and pondering this, you may be thinking about all the things you've done in your life, the good things. Uh, I'm a pretty good person. People 
like me. I mind my own business. I've never been in jail. I pay my taxes. Or maybe you're thinking, I've been baptized. Actually, right here. It might even have been right here. I've been baptized. Or I go to church. I don't, I don't miss a Sunday. I come to Bridgeway every Sunday. I'm on the elder team. <laughs> I'm set. Uh, I lead an action team. I've, I've gone on mission trips overseas where people don't even speak English. I mean... Surely God is impressed with all that. Or maybe you're answering a little differently and you're thinking, um, of all the things you don't do. Uh, I walked away from alcohol. Or I've committed to abstaining, to, to abstinence until I get married. Uh, I don't use foul language. Again, maybe when I'm driving um, or when I'm watching sports. (laughs) Um, There's a long list of things we could say, I cut this out of my life. It's no longer something I habitually am doing. And that's great. We want to have victory over these things that that are destructive. But we have to remember, not doing is also a performance-oriented work or action. So without even realizing it, it's so easy to slip into this and make the equation look like this. Jesus plus my performance is salvation. That's how I know I have salvation. It's great what Jesus did, but I gotta make sure I keep up too. This equation is wrong before anyone writes it down and puts it as a bookmark. (laughs) This is wrong, okay? Um, Your brain probably knows that, but maybe your heart has been tricked into following it. You see, salvation is based on what Christ has done. I know we say that a lot and we hear it and we sing about it, But it's so easy, our hearts wander away and we latch on to something that we can physically touch or physically display and show people. But that's not the point. Everything has already been done. Christ did it already. Everything, all of it. There is nothing we can do, nothing. The reason we forget this, I think, so quickly is we live in a performance based society and I teach high school and of course it's a performance based class I'm doing this all the time I'm evaluating and judging my students daily how many answers did you get right on the quiz how many did you get wrong well congratulations you scored 58% Chemistry is really up your alley. Now, of course, that percentage is based on that particular topic on that particular day. Um, As an aside, you know, (laughs) 
it can be entertaining and sometimes even thought-provoking to watch students react to when I give back quizzes and exams. At 58, you would think, well, everyone would react the same way. Nope. <laughs> I, uh, I recently gave a fit, well, no, I think it was a 64. But anyway, it, it, it wasn't a very good mark for this student because as soon as I gave it to him, he took his fist and pounded the desk. He was mad. How did he make so many mistakes? He was mad. I gave 58 to the next student, and they're raising their hands. Yes! I'm amazing. <laughs> I passed. I pa they look like jumping around. And then the student over there who got 88, they're all depressed. <laughs> so, um, and then there's some students who don't react at all. Completely indifferent. There's no reaction. There's just, uh, can I just get back to my phone now? That's the, doesn't matter. It's fine, yeah. It's fine. <laughs> so, um, this is, uh, it's hard to admit, but it's been over 25 years when I was at Providence Seminary. And I had uh, aspirations of, I wasn't sure exactly what, but aspirations of going into some kind of full-time ministry. Um, and it was while I was there that I realized I had strayed. I had wandered away from the true, actual gospel. Not sure how it happened. I've been going to church for so long, I think it, it just happened really slowly over time. And I was given an assignment. The assignment was read through the Old Testament, New Testament, and find any kind of evidence of what were people motivated, or why were people motivated to follow God and do what God wanted them to do. Old Testament, New Testament. And I realized as I was doing this that there were two things that kept popping up. Now, it's true. There's a couple times where people were were following God because they wanted a reward or they wanted to avoid God's wrath or God's judgment. But generally speaking, those were not the mo main motivations. The two main motivations that came up again and again were number one, because of who God is, and number two, because of what God has done. And that was it. And because of those two truths, because of those two realities, people decided to follow God. And this hit me as I was, you know, trying to write all these term papers and everything, that I had been following the wrong thing. I was actually motivated by God being impressed with me. If I give up a quote-unquote normal life and go into ministry and make sacrifices for that, and make less money and all these things that at some point God would have to bless me because, wow, you're amazing. This, this had gotten into my head. And the crazy thing, it's not so crazy, now that I think about it, the crazy thing was actually studying scripture opened my eyes to it. 
that I needed to change, that I, I needed to get back to the truth. And I was living in Saskatoon, and there was, there was me and three other guys, all from, from Bethany Bible College, and we would stay up sometimes to 3 o'clock in the morning trying to figure out, okay, what exactly is the message? What exactly is it that changes people? If it's not following the rules and being a good boy, what is it? And eventually we realized, well, it's Jesus. <laughs> Jesus the person, not Jesus' rules, not Jesus' principles, Jesus the person. In John chapter 6, some people came to Jesus and asked, what must we do to do the works God requires? Even the question itself is loaded. Obviously, it's something we, we can actually, there's some action we can do, right? And Jesus says, no, no. The work of God is this, to believe in the one he has sent, to believe in Jesus. Belief in Jesus as God's anointed Messiah and faith in his power, his power to free us from our sin and to free us from God's wrath, this is what we are called to do. When Jesus died and rose to fulfill God's plan, it was over. Nothing more was required. We don't have to obey the laws to gain salvation. We don't have to do a very minimal amount of work on Sundays to get salvation. Now, of course, doing the right thing and obeying the laws, I'm not saying that we have to cast that aside. If you jump ahead to chapter 3, Paul makes it pretty clear. Here's the things that you don't want to do. They're pretty sinful things. And here's the things that you should be doing because that's what you do when you're full of Jesus. So that's still important. But that's not where salvation comes from. So the actual equation is Jesus plus nothing is everything. Everything. We have everything. If you have Jesus, you have everything. Because of Jesus, you are part of God's family. You are God's son. You are God's daughter. You are God's son. You are God's daughter. That's who you are. Because of Jesus. Now, it's not all that common when I'm reading through the New Testament to come across a word that I actually use in grade 11 chemistry class. <laughs> but it happened. Um, in, in chemistry, I taught, we learn about stoichiometry. Stoichiometry, which is from the Greek, which means to measure the elements. To measure the elements. And this word is used in Colossians chapter 2. Paul says in verse 20, if you have died with Christ to the elementary principles, to the elements, to the basic 
most basic principles, why are you still trying to follow them? And if you go back to chapter 2, verse 8, he uses the same word again. Make sure no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deception according to the traditions of men, according to the elementary principles. The word is stoikion in Greek. The elementary principles rather than according to Christ. You see, in chemistry, there is something called a periodic table. You'll see it in every textbook. You'll see it hanging from the wall in science classes. It shows every single element in the known universe. And it has a bunch of symbols and numbers, and the numbers all make sense and are very systematic. They're based on protons, neutrons, and electrons. The very most basic things in the universe. You can't even see them. That's how basic they are. <laughs> That's how small they are. The protons, the neutrons, and the electrons. That's what these people were teaching. The very lowest basic stuff. Instead of Christ, who created all the protons, electrons, and neutrons in the first place. So you can see why Paul is getting agitated at times. It seems like he's kind of getting mad. Yeah, don't fall for this. Don't go back to that. You have Jesus. Don't be disqualified. Why, why would you want to get kicked out of the game? Why are you letting these people kick you out of the game? See, I sometimes wonder as a church or as a church in Canada, United States, what can we offer people? What can we say? Hey, if you come to church and you become a Christian, these are all the things you can have. You can have uh, blessings. You can have peace. You can have freedom from suffering, freedom from stress, freedom from all your family drama. That's all going to go away. No, that's... We're not offering that. God isn't offering that. He's offering Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ is everything. Everything. You don't need anything else. If everything else disappeared, you would still have everything. And this is what we can tell the world. And some of them will believe it. So I'll call up the worship team for closing song. As they're coming, let me just pray for all of you. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you have done everything and your salvation is perfect and there's nothing we can add to it. And we thank you that you love us and you accept us because of Jesus. Help us to follow. Help us to believe Help us to not be distracted by our sinful hearts, by the ways of the world and the ideas that are surrounding us all the time. Bring us back to you. Amen. Amen. Please stand with us as we finish off our morning service here.
while he was still a long way off. The words from the story of the prodigal son, while he was still a long way off, the father went out to him. Right? And that son would have had a thousand reasons why he didn't deserve the father's love. Changes he was going to have to make in his life and sacrifices, things he was going to have to make up for. He was the ultimate example of someone who would have had to do all of this work and rule following to make it up to his dad. It would have taken him his whole life to make it up to his dad, what he had robbed of his dad, half the inheritance. But a long way off, dad sees that he's turned around to come home. And dad accepts him, runs out to him, and embraces him. Before he had done a single thing, following a rule, denying himself anything, making up for anything. Praise Jesus that our salvation is found in the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross and not on the things that we can do for Jesus. For we are broken people, but a long way off. He saved us and has welcomed us home. Father, as the church family is dismissed from this place, I pray that you would impress on their hearts freedom this morning. I pray that you would impress on their hearts, Lord Jesus, that they are accepted, that they are loved and forgiven. Apart from anything that they could do to make it up to you, to try to earn favor with you, they are set free. Lord Jesus, would that be pressed on our hearts so deeply and firmly that it becomes a rhythm of our lives to remember that daily. We have been set free. Jesus plus nothing equals everything. There's nothing we need to bring to the table. You have brought it all. Lord Jesus, dismiss the church from this place today with your incredible blessing and freedom. And would you send them out into this world to share freedom to the captives, to bless the world. Lord Jesus, we love you. We honor you and we pray this in your holy name. Amen. You're dismissed.